Sit back, it's time to get groovy. Question, do you remember that movie? Welcome back to the podcast, or welcome for the first time. I am the third Alejandro Rosa on IMDb, and I am your host. Today, we have a very special guest on the podcast. There are so many things I want to say about this individual, but in order to do it justice, I need a 1990s track. This guy, who I met in, I want to say, the mid to late 90s, maybe 1998, I think might be right. Yeah? Okay. Um, We became friends in college, and after that we really didn't see each other very much for many years. Then we saw each other once, and then he went away. Philly's son went across the ocean to Australia, and then he left again, this time for Japan, and then Taiwan and then Hokkaido Island in Japan again. And tonight, he is here with me, and by that I mean he's in Hokkaido, in Japan, talking to me. This is my dear friend, Sean Keenan. Thank you very much, the third (laughs) uh, Alejandro Rosa on IMDb. Uh, I am uh, thrilled to be at your desk and doing this podcast. We are going to get into the movie soon. But uh, I'm going to go on and on about this guy. You are listening to a man who is an actor, a film director, a teacher, a photographer, and an upcoming YouTuber as well. And I have probably actually forgotten a few things in the meantime. Maybe I would throw in there, and and this is more personal. uh, Joy is uh, I'm a husband and a father as well. Now, I have a very special relationship with this guy because again like i said in the uh very uh, dramatic 1990s intro we have known each other since college we haven't seen each other much we saw each other in college we saw each other once in philadelphia we saw the, right. each other once in virginia and then never again <laughs> yeah and we're seeing each other now and i think we had like i think we had we did a video chat like maybe a year or two ago i think didn't we uh, I think we just send little videos back and forth to each other sometimes of like, hey, that's true. Hey, this that's is, a, hey, it's snowing again <laughs> in Hokkaido. Hey, look at this snow. It's, <laughs> it's up to my ears. And, um, and one of the things I, I will say is that uh, I'm grateful for Sean because not only has he been an incredible friend for a chunk of my life, also he has been what I've always referred to as the silent producer of my podcast. He has constantly been there to provide me feedback. He's actually helped shape this podcast from when it started a couple of years ago to what it is now. So I'm always grateful for that. If we're going to be praising uh, each (laughs) other the guest. let me just say, uh, Alejandro, (laughs) in my intro, he mentioned that I have a a, a YouTube channel. And I remember... uh, four, five, six years ago, he was like, Sean, you should do a YouTube channel. I was like, no, I'm not interested in doing that. Not at all. No, thanks. Not my thing. And uh, over the years, he did not stop telling me over and over again (laughs) until the very day that I said, you know what? You're right. I'm going to do a YouTube channel. And I did. And the same. Uh, Alejandro has been a creative tour de force behind everything that I do. He's that guy that I go, hey, does this work? And and he gives me such pinpoint feedback that it, it makes everything better. So, hey, kudos to you. 
I'm blushing in another country. I'm going to uh, out-nice you, okay? No, you're not. Um, okay, so let us talk about this episode's movie. Nobody yeah. Knows. A Japanese film came out August 7th, 2004. Now, this is the first time we are doing, a, I guess you would say, a non-American film. I don't want to say foreign film. Let's say non-American film. And nice. one thing that I realized before we get into the meat of this film, which is not light, um, mm. but I will have to point something out. And Sean, I am going to need your help because as I was taking notes, I realized something. Okay. I can't pronounce any of these people's names. Okay. I can't yeah, pronounce. I, <laughs> <laughs> I started taking notes. I'm like, uh, I don't know how to say that. Okay, hang on. Okay, oh, this is the actor's name. That's fine. Let me write the character. Yeah, I don't know how to say that either. Oh, my God. I'm going to destroy the Japanese language. Wow. And that's what I thought as I took notes while I watched this film and while I, you know, did research. So, just as a preamble, dear Japanese country and all Japanese people from around the world, I apologize in advance if in any way I do you a disservice with my horrid pronunciation. My friend Sean will... will be here to correct, to adjust, but I cannot edit out everything that I say poorly. So instead, I ask for your forgiveness with this film and this director who I, two things, didn't know about this movie before we watched it, didn't know about this director before we watched it, and I've become a fan of both. So with the greatest respect, please, Except my apology in advance. Sean, who wrote and directed this film? Uh, this is Hirokazu Koreeda-san. Uh, Koreeda is his uh, surname, and Hirokazu is his first name. Hirokazu is a multi-award-winning director, writer, producer, editor. He's had multiple films nominated for everything from the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival to everything else. Actually, he's been nominated for the Palme d'Or multiple times. He won in 2018. He's directed more than a dozen films and documentaries. And I will say something. When I looked up this director and I looked up these films, what I came to realize was, one, never heard of the director, didn't know any of the people he was influenced by because they were all Japanese directors and filmmakers. What is your relationship with Japanese film. And I say that because when we knew each other, we were both very young men studying theater, mm. paths we did continue to take in various ways. But at some point, you and I reconnected, and you had gone from theater guy to Australia guy to guy who was doing his, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, his second short film, his second Japanese short film. So what is your relationship with Japanese cinema? Because clearly I have none. So please share. And your relationship with this director, if you have one. So I think I had seen a couple of Kurosawa films with my uncle Hugh. He was a huge fan. And I, I always thought that, you know, those samurai films were pretty amazing. They were so cool. Uh, but other than that, I had no connection. When I saw this film, I think that this is the first Japanese film that I had seen since watching those classics, those Kurosawa classics. Since I've come to Japan, I have to say I'm not a major fan of Japanese cinema. There's a lot of formulaic presentation of Japanese 
entertainment. It follows too much of that formula and it's not uniquely creative enough for my taste. Uh, so music and television and film. Now, Koreeda's films are so naturalistic and they don't follow this formula of presentation. And I think a lot of that presentation comes from the tradition of kabuki and no theater. That still has a massive influence on the way that Japanese actors present their body of work. I think Koreeda-san has such a naturalistic documentary style that I absolutely love. Now, my connection to the director, I, I have to take it back a few steps. I mentioned that I had worked for a, in, an English through drama school in Tokyo. And that company was founded by a Hollywood Japanese casting director. Uh, she was a co-founder of this school. And she's a casting director for films like Minamata, a Johnny Depp film from 2020, The Ramen Girl, director or assistant for Memoirs of a Geisha. So many that had been filmed in Japan or with Japanese actors. And I met her on multiple occasions. And I actually, I auditioned for The Ramen Girl. I didn't get a part, but um, a friend of mine did. A friend of mine also from the same company auditioned. She got a part and I didn't. Listen, I auditioned for one of the Fast and Furious films. I also auditioned for one of the Twilight films and I didn't get it. And you know what the audition was? I had to nod. Somebody had to say a line off stage, right? Or off camera, not off stage. Mm -hmm. um, and I just had to nod. And so I didn't have anybody to say the line with me. So I actually recorded myself saying the line and then i had myself nod that's it that was the audition someone nodded better than me and i will always think about that late at night when i'm laying in bed but i i, I, I still but think about my audition too <laughs> really? i still think like how could i done how could have i have done that better and and what mine was is so i had to imagine that somebody put a steaming hot bowl of ramen in front of me and i had to take a sip and look at the person across from me at the table and say to them, did I ever tell you that I love you? Oh, and that was it. That's so good. Right? And, but I, I now think that what I should have done was taken a sip and said that to the bowl of ramen. I love it. And then looked up and caught the girl's eye across from me and go, oh, oh, I, oh. <laughs> That would have been I would so have given better. you that direction. That's a great. That's a great choice. That's a better choice. Yes. Through this company, I was I was getting involved in the film industry. Right. Uh, I wound up teaching. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Letters of Iwo Jima, directed by Clint Eastwood. And I don't think I've seen it. I'm familiar there, with it. Yeah. Ihara Tsuyoshi. He, I actually think he's a really great actor. He has such a stoicism to him and a, and a, and a dignity to him. I really like this this actor. And I wound up teaching him English for a New York accent. He was doing a movie here in Japan and he wanted to do a New York accent. And so I, I had a class with him. It was great. It was brilliant. So I was wrapping myself up into the, the, the film industry here in Japan. And I was making, I had just finished making Blind Love, one of my short films, and I was working on producing The Screaming Bear. It was a, a, another project that I was going to do, and I wanted to shoot it in Japan. And my company had set me up with an NHK director. NHK is like the BBC or like um, PBS in America. And so he was a producer for NHK. And, and so uh, I had a couple of meetings with this guy, and he was talking to me about potentially me directing some 
uh, I don't know, some anime thing. <laughs> I don't remember what it was. And he took me to a film premiere of Koreeda san's next film after Dari Mo Shiranai. Sorry, the Japanese title of this film is Dari Mo Shiranai. Nobody knows. His follow up film was Aruite Mo Aruite Mo, which means、uh, walking and continue walking, something like that. And so I went to this premiere with all of these famous Japanese actors that were in this. Kiki Kokoro, Yu san. Yu was、uh, the actress from Dari Mo Shiranai, the, the mother. Abe Hiroshi, who is a huge actor here in Japan,、uh, among others. And so I watched this film premiere, and afterwards I'm walking through the line, shaking hands with everybody, and I met Koreeda san. And I just held his hand, and I was like, I am so glad to meet you. I thought Dari Mo Shiranai was such an amazing film. It was, it was so, and, and, and I just gushed, <laughs> as you do. And,、uh, and he just nodded and said, Thank you very much. Wow. And I moved on.、Uh, so that, that, that for me was such a, a powerful. Moment, this film that up to that point I had only seen once. When did you see this film? I was at the tail end of my stint in Australia. The entire time I was in Australia, I lived in Melbourne. And then from Melbourne, I, I knew that I was going to be leaving, so I traveled around a little bit. I went to a place called Cannes and and I spent a, about a month there. And then I went to Sydney and I spent about a month in Sydney as well. In this area called Glebe, It was kind of this older, somewhat affluent area, and it just had this nice style. This, it had, as the Japanese say, funky. It had atmosphere to it. It was a cool neighborhood. I really liked it. I can't remember how far this theater was from this area that I was staying, but it wasn't that far. I remember walking past this theater, and I had seen the poster. For this film. And I, and I, I believe there was, it was a shot from the film of, of these kids that were spinning around in the playground equipment. And I think the shot was from that. That was the poster. Now, when I was in Melbourne, I had seen a trailer for this film. And I thought, I want to see that. I don't know what it was that captured me. It, maybe it was the music, maybe it was the, the style of the cinema,、uh, cinematography. I'm not quite sure what captured me, but when I saw the poster, I immediately remember the trailer that I saw. Immediately, I just bought a ticket. I, 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 don't, I don't even remember where I was going, but I just put that on hold. I was like, you know, I'm watching this film. And it was this tiny little theater, maybe, I don't know, 40, 50 seats. I can't quite remember. It was underground. I had to walk down these steps, and it was this really old theater. It had that old, like they invested in the style of this cinema. It was that, that kind of old theater. And I watched the film there and I left with a kind of feeling that sticks with you. Like I said, I, I've only seen this film twice once in the cinema and once I showed it to my wife. And my wife was like, Why didn't you show me this film? It's so sad. I never want to see that again.、Um, She's not wrong. But, There are images from this film that have never left me. There were so many cultural things in the movie that I didn't know yet. And when I went to Japan not that long later, I saw all of these things that I had seen in the film for the first time. And, and it, it just imprinted it on my soul. So, this film is about a group of kids who end up getting abandoned by their mother and have to kind of figure it out on their own. This film is based on the Sugamo child abandonment case 
which occurred in April of 1988, which is about a mother who abandoned her children. And they were eventually found uh, by the authorities uh, who had been trying to live on their own with their oldest, the oldest uh, brother taking care of them because they left him with the equivalent of 350 American dollars, let's say. So that's mm. what nobody knows is about. It's about a group of children trying to survive. And at first, mom comes back and then she kind of goes away for a little bit. And then eventually mom just doesn't come back and they have to figure it out. Cora Ada directed a lot of documentaries before he directed this film. He said that he was in a project where he filmed middle schoolers for like three years. So he got really good at filming kids. And I found this really fascinating. He, they, they auditioned thoroughly until they found the four kids. There was four siblings. None of them were professional actors. They did not get really scripts. He apparently said in an interview that he would tell them that day what their lines were going to be because that made it easier for the kids to kind of process and, and say the lines in a natural way. He did something that I thought was really fascinating. He directed this film the way he did his documentaries. He would film, he would then leave and edit, and then he would come back and film again. It added to the passage of time for the film, but it was also because he was kind of, he said he was discovering it himself, and he wanted to see what it would be like to film a fictional subject in a documentary style. I think this film, it, you're right, it is about these children trying to find their way, but I think it's so much more poetic than that. He takes the veil away from an adult's point of view, and he makes you experience this with the kids from a childlike perspective. Now, obviously, you can watch it as an adult and put down your wall and see it in a very observational kind of way. But if you really open yourself to the way that he directed this film, everything that he did, all of his choices bring you in from a childlike point of view. And that way, it opens your emotional core to experience it like a child. And I think that's why this film really has stuck with me. I felt it in a childlike sort of way. There's a, a saying in Japanese, uh, and you may have heard it before, called wabi-sabi. There's no direct translation for this word, but it, it's basically like um, beauty in the imperfect, in the broken. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, if you've seen those crafted cups that were broken and then they reform them with like golden lines in the, in the cracks, beauty in the broken and beauty in the imperfect. And I think that this film is wabi-sabi. It's beauty in the imperfect. Because it, it's the main character, Akira, the, the boy. It's his story and how the other siblings are a part of his suffering because he's the one that's taken on the mantle of adult, of parent, of the support for the other kids. You know, at one point, he gives them a gift of money for New Year's where he made sure that somebody else wrote their names on it so it looked like it was from their mother who obviously had abandoned them uh, at this point. And he knew it. He knew she wasn't coming back. But he went and had somebody else write the names on it and gave it to the other brothers and sisters to say, oh, this is from mom. You know, Happy New Year. That weight that that boy carried. I mean, there, there's so many... This movie is very sensual in a way that it's all the senses of the of the children experiencing life in this basically this uh, room by themselves. They've, they've been told by their mom not to leave. That's that's extremely important. So let's give some context to that. So, yeah. first of all, there are four children 
And the way to understand this, the movie opens with mom and her oldest son, who is 12 in the film, Akira, um, introducing themselves to the landlord, uh, saying, you know, it's just he and I, dad works overseas, I believe they said. So, you mm. know, essentially you won't see him much. It's just the two of us, but he's a very serious boy. After they've moved in, they carry two suitcases into their house. And inside the suitcases are Shigeru and Yuki, who are... Mm. Shigeru and Yuki. Shigeru. Yuki. Um, Yuki is five. They never actually seem to say Shigeru's age, but he seemed like he was six or seven. And they mm. were in the suitcases because they didn't want the landlord to know that there were multiple children. Now, help me understand that. Is that because they would have paid more for rent if there were more children? That was something I didn't understand before I moved to Japan as well. But now that I'm here, I kind of understand it in a different way. The landlords, they're very particular about who they let their apartments too. And so if you are a single mother on a certain salary, they basically won't rent to you because you can't afford this place. Uh, and so single mothers, I think, have a, a pretty hard time finding apartments because there's fear that either one, they'll lose their job because they have to take care of the kids. And so they don't want to take that risk. So the fact that the boy is older, he's 12 years old, he's going to elementary school, it's probably easier for the mom. But the younger kids, it's harder and harder. Uh, and so it's just a, a business decision, kind yeah. of, at that point by yeah. the landlords. And so she would likely not have been able to get this apartment had they known that she had three other kids. And then, then more questions would start popping up. Why is dad overseas with four kids here and that kind of thing. And so it was her way of eliminating probing questions. So the two tiny ones, they are in suitcases in the moving van. The oldest yeah, daughter... Yeah, already sets the tone for the poor decision-making of the mom, right? A hundred percent, yeah. Um, and then the oldest daughter, she can't get into a suitcase. So she's on the, the rail, right? She's on, on the train. And yeah, she, they, she... they just leave her at the train station and they have to go and pick her up later. She's just 11. And so she's just waiting for somebody to come pick her up at the, tra at the metro station. That's the beginning. That's like the first five minutes of this film. The rules. Mom says flat out, no loud voices, no screaming, no going outside. The children cannot go outside. They cannot be seen. The only one who's allowed, like you said, is Akira. He's the only one who they know exists. So the other three, including the 11-year-old, they're not allowed to go anywhere. They're just mm. supposed to stay in their apartment. And to the point that the washing machine is on the veranda. Um, That's right. And the daughter who is in charge of doing that, she has to be careful to not be seen while she's doing that. And the little ones are told, you're not allowed to go on that porch ever. Right. Because again, this is the only way they can survive. And they even say that the, the younger one, Shigeru, he's probably the reason they lost their last place because he was too loud because he was like six. You know, it's interesting to me because even before the mom truly leaves, she's in and out. Everyone has their chores. Akira is in charge of everyone. He is in charge of cooking, and he's in charge of making sure everybody's doing their homework. Nobody's in school. They're just doing studies. Yeah, over and over, the kids say to her, I want to go to school. And she's like, oh, you don't want to go to school. You don't need school. There's, you know, she said it multiple times throughout the film when they were saying, you know, I want to go to school. There's a heartbreaking scene um, is it Kyoko? Kyoko, yeah. The Kyoko. little girl. Yes. She looks at her mother and says, I want to go to school. And mom looks at her and says, you'll be bullied if you don't have a dad. So you don't want that. You don't want to go to school. They'll just bully you because you don't have a father. 
Yeah, Kyoko, I think it's interesting how the Koreeda uh, tells this story through the kids. And, and, and I have to say, uh, obviously, Akira is the main character, uh, uh, the protagonist of our film. And then Kyoko is focused on the second most after him. And everything that he focuses on with her is, is, is through her senses and her sensitivity. What a sensitive soul that little girl is. The, the moments that he touches on, especially, for example, like the moments where she's just longing for her mother. Yeah. And with the nail polish, you know, that that reoccurring motif of the nail polish, which also shows us the, the passage of time. Right. Uh, so mom paints her fingernails. And then we see like a couple scenes later and nail polish is almost completely gone. And mom still hasn't come back. You were saying how, you know, Akira is the, is the basically the one taking care of everything, the bills, the shopping. Right. And and so there is a moment where he says to mom. Uh, you know, he says to her, will you be late tonight? Do you want dinner? And she's like, what's for dinner? You know, which is what a kid would say, right? And then he says that he's making curry or right? And, uh, and, and I think that this moment is what solidifies in our mind that he's the parent. He's the adult. And she comes home drunk late that night. And he's sitting at the table doing his homework. And then she gives him a hard time for it. Here, just look at this book. It's in the book. And... He didn't understand a part. And then the little girl, Kyoko, she goes to get mom the curry and serves her. Like, these are the parents. These are the adults in the relationship. Uh, it's heartbreaking. Uh, and it just, it snowballs. It, it descends into chaos for the kids. You see that Akira is really trying to keep it together throughout the two-thirds of the film. And then there, there's a moment where he just, you see he breaks down and he loses it. And, he, and you know, he, he's been trying to create this illusion for the others that mom is coming back, that this is normal, this is okay. And, and he, he even goes and begs for money from the other. And this is something that we learn as well, that they don't have the same dad. None of them they do. They have different dads. And nobody uh, knows who the youngest dad is, which is interesting because he goes to two different <laughs> guys. One of them who clearly thinks that's my daughter. The other one who's like, there's no way that's my daughter. And he goes to them begging for money. You, you mentioned the mother. There's another moment where she comes home from a partying night. It's late. All the kids are asleep. Akira has passed out at the kitchen table doing his work, right? His schoolwork for the school he doesn't go to. And he hears her, he wakes up, but then he pretends to be asleep. And she comes in like it's a party and she wakes everybody up because she got sushi as a present and everybody mm -hmm. deserves to have some. And, and she wakes up these little kids and it's like, come on, let's have this. Everybody wake up, why are you sleeping? As a, as a parent, I was just sitting there just so furious. Like, what are you doing? You never wake a sleeping child. What are you doing? But again, yeah. it's about her mindset and what she wants. There is a moment not long before she disappears for good where uh, she is at, I think I think it's the metro station with Akira and there he's having like a donut or something. She says she's been dating someone and it's very serious. And it's going very well. And he asks her, have you told him about us? And she goes, I will eventually. In a very whining, oh. Oh, yeah. She's very annoyed at these questions. She's just whining. Like, she's like, oh, no, 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 I can't tell. I will kind of thing, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's later. She's like, you're so aggravating, right? Because he's asking her these genuine, serious adult questions. And throughout the course of the film, there are moments where you see Akira watching other children be children. Yeah. With... And, and I marked that down in my notes as well. So many times he's trying to play. 
Yeah. You know, he, he wants to be like the other kids. There's a moment where he finds a ball. It's like a little park. And he just finds a ball that somebody left behind. I noticed this. It's the first time in the movie we see him play. And he's actually mm -hmm. like playing, throwing the ball up in the air and catching it. Like any 12-year-old, you know, instead of going and budgeting. Because, again, we cannot state this enough. He's taking care of everything. He's paying for all the bills. Mom has left money. So he is budgeting for their bills, their food, everything. Yeah, we see that he has a book that he's writing down. He's keeping receipts. He's writing everything down. He's keeping a tally book. While he's practicing his math, right, to make mm -hmm. sure he's good at it. And there are times where he looks at his sister and goes, oh, I missed this. He's desperately trying to do this while at the same time they constantly remind us he's 12 he is 12 years old and like you said there's a great moment in the film where he just gives up and just starts doing making very poor choices uh spending money on snacks and buying video games like any 12 year old would money would do because he's just given up and he um, yells at the kids that mom's not coming back it's interesting to see his reaction to her loss as opposed to his sister's whereas i feel like you see him kind of explode outwardly with anger and defiance and doing the things he clearly knows he's not supposed to be doing mm -hmm. and then you have his sister who just kind of it's like 11 year old depression right like yeah i think that we experience the struggle of this situation through akira but we experience the emotion and the longing through Kyoko. Now, the, the younger two siblings, we, we don't really, we, we're more observant of them than experiencing their feelings. Yeah. And I think that's a lot to do with, at that age, they just think this is normal. They don't, they don't know any different. They don't know that this is not normal. I mean, if you take it back to the very first scene where they're, they're in the suitcases and they come out of the suitcases, they're smiling. They're mm. not annoyed. They're not angry. They're not upset. They thought it, it was adventure. <laughs> it's just something they had to do. It's so hot. It's yeah, so it's hot. hot. Yeah. And, and honestly, like when you think about it, probably not the first time they've had to do that. Mm. Right. So they're kind of just used to it. Either they were totally fine with this or they've done this before. Either way, they were totally fine. We, we do see that these things are reoccurring by little hints throughout the, the film, like the mom says that she's in love. When the, you, know, you know the scene where they're out on the balcony and she's hitting the mattress, the futon mattress with the thing, she's telling Akira, I'm in love, and he goes, again? She's talking mm -hmm. about her romantic life with her son, who's 12 mm -hmm. years old. Yeah, so the, that scene with, that, with and, 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 and maybe I'm jumping the gun here to the end of the film, but it's okay. <laughs> with Yuki coming out of the suitcase, it's very foreshadowing of what's to come later in the film, right? Uh, of yeah. Yuki going back in the suitcase. We're not going to tell the whole plot because, well, actually for two reasons, I'll say this time. I know in some other, <laughs> I think in my last episode, we like went through every minute of the plot. You can't yeah. do that with this film because I really do think that you have to experience it. So we're not going to go into all the details of the plot. I will say that when the movie started, I felt we were on a downhill trajectory the entire time. And at some point when I looked at the clock and it said that I had 50 minutes left, I was concerned. And I thought mm. to myself, dear God, how dark is it going to get? There was another foreshadowing. It was when Shigeru? Shigeru. Shigeru. I told you my Japanese is terrible. Shigeru. When his plant fell off the balcony. Yes. And, and it fell. And I want you to know, it's in my notes. I wrote in parentheses, plan was foreshadowing? Question mark. 
when I wrote that was actually long after it had happened. And so a minute later, it was proven to me that it was foreshadowing. There's so much going on here. You're so correct. It is told through the child's eyes because as grown-ups, and I'm going to add a little personal note here, my wife jokes uh, that I will cry at anything, but I did not cry during this film. And I think part of it has to do with my personal background as somebody who was an intern in Child Protective Services um, for close to a year before I graduated. And also my wife was for a few years a Child Protective Services investigator. Through those two mm -hmm. connections, I learned a lot about child welfare and the realities of things that we don't see. And so the entire time, I thought to myself, if they just reach out, they'll get help if they just tell someone. But that led to what I think is a pinnacle moment in the film. And also, again, going back to what they've lived through, there is a kind of teenager who's working at the uh, grocery market where Akira goes often for shopping. And they know that the mother's not around. And this teenager, who's so sweet, says, why don't you go to child welfare? Why don't you go to the police? Mm -hmm. And Akira says, I can't do that. They'll separate us. And we did that once and it was awful. It's repeating that again. This is going to happen again. Right. And it's interesting because I thought about that and he's not wrong. That's true. Mm. In fact, I brought it up again to my wife and I told her about that specific statement and she nodded and she said, mm. in my time in Child Protective Services, there were two, two groups of siblings that she saw that were not separated that were put in foster care together and even got adopted together. But mm. she said, typically, people can't handle a whole bunch of kids, so they have to separate them just to get them services. So it's just so interesting because he has been through this before. He knows what he could do, and he never goes through with it. Yet he cares so much for his, his siblings. And do you remember the, the friend that they make, Saki? Saki, the, the what an incredible high girl, yeah right? and and so she buys him a drink from a vending machine one day and she puts it on oh it's so cold because tokyo summers are hot and brutal right and so not once do we see him drink the drink and then the next shot is that empty bottle with four cups all around it he took it back a hundred percent share let's say that again because i'm pretty sure i sniffed right into the microphone accidentally yeah no worries so, <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned Saki. Saki? Yeah, Saki is the high school friend, the, the girl that they meet who is also kind of having her own kind of struggles with, with school life. It seems that there is a point where uh, the other kids are bullying her and they make a little shrine for her death by her bicycle or something and they run away laughing, right? Yeah, that was so messed up. So she's so having her up. own isolation problems. Yeah, she starts from, skipping from school because um, yeah. she doesn't want to deal with it and she ends up running into them like in the park. And they, they all kind of, they, they befriend they each other. They all become friends. Yeah. yeah. At one point, Akira and Saki are walking back to her house. And it's kind of, he gets there and it's this like idyllic kind of house, this apartment building compared to where he's at. But on the way, she buys him a drink. And it's, it's this nice, uh, I think... I, I've had that drink before. It's like a juice drink, uh, something like that. I and think it had a lemon or an it orange on, him on and it. It's so hot, and then he's he's like, "Oh, it feels great," and he doesn't drink it. The next time we see, he's he's walking back to his house and he's throwing the bottle up in the air and catching it, and and that next shot is the empty bottle next to four cups. He's taken it all the way back to his house where he's 
shared it with his brother and sister because they've got nothing. So somebody has shown him kindness and bought him a, a cold drink and he didn't even drink it. Now, there's so many little moments like this that throughout the film. Like, do you remember the scene where uh, uh, Shigeru finally has had enough and he leaves the house? He's yes. like, I'm going. Right? He said that he was hungry and, and he just he left. And Akira has gone out to the convenience store because it's the only place that they can afford to, to buy stuff. And he buys these cup noodle bowls, right? I don't know if you noticed or not, but he carries them back because they're, they're filled with water. And the reason why he's filled them up at the convenience store is because they have no running water, no electricity at the house. And the convenience store is not close. Like no. He's walked a, a long way. And they show us the, the path back and forth to the convenience store throughout the entire film. You know it takes a long time to get there. Yeah, and All by the time the way he gets back. back, probably it's not hot anymore. But, no. you know, the fact that he's done that for his brother Shigeru and Shigeru's not there. And I think this is the point that breaks him. Because it's that at that point, he finds Shigeru. And Shigeru is actually doing what kids would do. He's found other kids to play with. And Akira comes and tells him, don't ever come back. Don't come back. And he storms off. And, and it, it descends into a, a, just a mess. Uh, you know, it just breaks down the entire cohesion of, of what's happening. And at that point, I'm not sure if it's before or after he's made the friends that are coming into the house. And, you know, do you, I don't know if you caught that moment where the first time Akira brings those boys in and Yuki's reaction, she's sitting quietly. Obviously, it's their space, right? At that point, all of her crayons are just crayons are just nubs. So many little beautiful moments like that to show us the passage of time. But I digress. So Akira brings these boys in and it's the first time anybody has ever stepped in to that apartment except for the mom. And Yuki has been in there the entire time. And her reaction was so pure and like, what? Yeah. She didn't say anything. She's just looking and, and kind of backs up and makes a space for them. But like that was her space that was invaded. It was really a touching little tiny moment. And I find these throughout the entire film, you know, and, and how about the scene where Akira is, is sitting on the fence outside of the school? This is closer to the end of the film, and he wants to reconnect with those boys because they had a falling out. And so he goes to try and reconnect with them, and he's sitting on a fence and the fence is completely concave. It's bent down completely. What a poetic moment to show us the weight that Akira is under. Yeah, the weight of that scene in Akira's shoulders. He's just sitting on this fence wanting to be a kid and, and the fence was just completely bent. There's a moment that happens in the film. Akira is just furious. He's furious. He's sick of his mom and what she's done to them. And he goes to her kind of closet and he starts tearing out the clothes because he's going to sell them because they need, need the money. They need money. They have no money, no power, no water. And, you know, and her clothes are just hanging there. So he's like, forget it. And he's just furious and he's going to sell them. And of course, when he opens the closet, Kyoko's sitting in there because that's kind of her safe space. That's the place she goes to, her comfort. And she fights with him uh, about a particular piece and she slams the door shut to the closet because that's her space. That's her mom. They kind of allude to this at she still thinks she's coming back. Mm. And she doesn't express her emotions in anger the way Akira does multiple times. Like it's just a very silent, just longing is what you see in there. And it's so heartbreaking. Another scene that I, I thought was incredibly heartbreaking. <laughs> this film is filled with heartbreaking it's, moments. Folks, um, if you want a heartbreaking film, you will find it here. <laughs> this film is not entertainment. 
it, it's a work of art and it's a heartbreaking work of art. Uh, I, for me, I think this film, and now this is only the third time that I've seen it. And, and I don't think that it will ever leave me. I, I, I have such vivid memories of different parts of this film. One of them is uh, Yuki's birthday. Yuki is the youngest girl. He's breaking my heart. Birthday, He's breaking my heart bringing this stuff up. Yes, the youngest child, who is five. He takes her outside. That's her birthday present. He takes her outside and she puts on these little squeaky shoes. And she's outgrown them. So at some point they fit her. They don't fit her anymore. But that's what yeah. she wants to wear. But Sean, just to break people's hearts a little bit more, please tell us why is she leaving the house for the first time in the film? Why? It's her birthday, no? That's not it. Sorry. Uh, I mean, it is her birthday. That's not why. Don't you remember? Oh, I missed that then. She says, Mommy's coming home tonight. And is that what he said? I missed that completely. She says that. She says that. Little girl says that. Yuki says that. And then oh. her sister says, no, 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 next week. And Akira says, no, 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 next week. And she says, no, she's coming home tonight. And she wants to go to the station to wait for her. Oh, oh wow. Oh, yeah, it's even, even more. more <laughs> yes. And so they get her dressed and they yeah. fix her hair. And she puts on her backpack that her mom got her. And she puts on her cute little squeaky girl shoes. And they go through the town. And they go to the metro station and they wait. He buys her these little chocolates called a polo choco. And she's, the, oh, just the way that she dumps them out into her hand. That's absolutely adorable. Through the course um, of the film, she's always, she has some and she always says, I'm going to, she's saving them. Yeah. But yes, they give, she has one. Um, and yeah, they have this moment, uh, Yuki's birthday. She's just waiting for her mom to come home. And of course she doesn't. And then well, how about that scene? What, what? That scene of uh, Akira looking up at the monorail going overhead. Uh, now, it seems like if we just talk about it, it seems like, okay, yeah, he's looking at a monorail going overhead. Now, to paint the scene, it's, it's nighttime. And the way that he is, uh, Koreeda-san has, has shot this is it's looking up from below. So we see Akira and this monorail lit up in the night. It has a, a shallow depth of field. So the monorail is in kind of, uh, it's blurred in the background, but it, it creates this ethereal effect. And it's looping around over him as he's following it, going from left to right and right to left. Did that scene strike you? Yeah, absolutely. It's also one of the moments where uh, the director uses music. Um, you will find if you watch this film, folks, Music is very sparse in this film. Mm. There is so much ambient noise. You hear the sound of outside. You hear the sound of the apartment. You hear the sound of them breathing, especially when they sleep. And there's these very key moments where they've decided to add music. And that's one of them. That scene for me is, is so much about Akira and not Yuki. Even though this whole section is about Yuki of her going out for her birthday. But that shot is completely about Akira. Yuki is not even in the shot for that one. And so for me, that's about him being able to escape. Early in the film, we find out that Akira's father works at Haneda Airport, and this is the monorail that goes to the airport. And you know, all kids, they have this moment uh, in their growth where they are just in awe of trains, right? And it has that kind of childlike beauty about trains and wow, that's so cool. And it's also this feeling of there's something greater yeah. than us at play. And, and I think it's all of that encapsulated 
in such a simple shot of just him seeing this train going back and forth. I've had friends that told me before that they didn't like the soundtrack because it just repeats. But for me, I really feel that that um, builds upon what the director is trying to show and the repetition of their life. I 100% agree with you because life is grinding and it is grinding them down little by little like the crayons that start out very tall and just become nubs. Life is doing that to them. It does it to the apartment as they give up a little bit more and more about it, um, about how they take care of it as well as themselves. Yeah, I think and combine that with the documentary film style where it feels like you are in a way watching this group of children slowly collapse. And I love how they, they show the passage of time, uh, whether it be the, the kid's hair growing out. There's one part where Akira's sister, Kyoko, says something about, your voice sounds funny because his yes. voice has gotten deeper, right? Um, <laughs> the, the, the way that they show the passage of time with the seasons, you know, the, from spring to winter to summer and, and that beautiful progression throughout the year. Yeah. Uh, despite the, the hardship that yeah. life goes on, life continues. We're not going to get into the ending. We're not. I think that's a good idea. No, yeah. it's I, just... I think, uh, I think people need to watch. <laughs> Look, if you've, listened, if you've hung on long enough, then you know this isn't going to end well, okay? But if you're into that sort of thing and you want to see a beautiful film that doesn't end well, we'll leave the ending for you to find. You said this is the third time you've watched this film. Only the third time. This is in my top 10 films of all time for me in how much it has stuck with me over the years. It connects with something so deep inside of our human experience that I feel I am a better person for having seen it, for understanding another's suffering and how life continues despite that suffering. Sean and I had decided that this would be our New Year's Eve episode, which might seem odd to some people why we would choose a depressing topic. But I want you to reframe it if you can, which is that through this experience, not only did I see something that I never would have seen before, um, I was exposed to Japanese film, Japanese director and this story. And so for me, looking forward to the year to come, it is about these sort of experiences. It is about getting out of our comfort zones and trying new things because all of these things help us grow. In Japan, do we do New Year's resolutions? How do we look forward to the coming year? I think it's usually on New Year's Day. People write a kanji in calligraphy. Uh, kanji is Japanese uh, writing system, right? So what maybe what you would say is a Chinese character. Uh, and people would think about what they want to focus on for that coming year. And they would write a character and then hang it up in their house. And that is their focus for the year. And so I do this almost every year. Back, this is back in the 1800s. An American came to Hokkaido. And he helped build the agricultural system here in Hokkaido. I think before he left, he had this uh, motivational letter or speech that he gave to uh, the students in Hokkaido University, I believe. And he said, boys, be ambitious. 
And that translates in Japanese to taishio idake. For this last year, uh, 2022, my kanji that I wrote was be ambitious. So that was when I was starting to get the idea for making my YouTube channel. That was、uh, my goal for this past year be ambitious. Sean Keenan Photography. Look it up on YouTube. I will post a link in the description of this episode to his YouTube channel. It is so wonderful, so unique. So, his own, his own voice. It's a great channel. Hokkaido is absolutely beautiful. So, every time he goes anywhere, it's just a, a surprise of like, oh wow, they have that too. That's amazing. And he's a wonderful explorer and he's a wonderful teacher and he's just entertaining as can be. So, please take a moment, go to Sean Keenan Photography on YouTube. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you tonight, slash, your morning. Having known you for many, many, many years with big pieces of our lives missing, right? Like we keep coming back together with giant parts of our lives changing. It is still such a delight to talk to you, to listen to you, to hear how your brain works, and just enjoy your presence. And I, I enjoyed it when we were goofy college kids, and I enjoy it still now. Maybe next time I won't pick such a depressing film. I doubt it.、Uh, <laughs> you know, actually,、uh, do you know Spotify? When you're a member on the Spotify、uh, thing, they, they come up with this、uh, evaluation of your musical tastes. And、uh, my last one was my two favorite musical tastes are melancholy and happy. <laughs> so thank you so much. Have a beautiful day in Japan. Yeah, happy new year, man. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. I hope you did too. And I hope you have an incredible new year, and we will look forward to what your kanji says going into 2023.、Mm, yeah, I need to think about that. Yeah, that's right. You better think about it soon because it's almost the new year. Take care of yourself, and we'll do this again. We'll find an excuse, and we will record just so that we have an excuse to talk to each other. <laughs> <laughs>